Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 155, Coronation. First, I want to do something I've never done on this podcast before, uh, make a kind of statement. Uh, I want to state my solidarity with the people of Ukraine in resisting the aggression of Putin and his cronies. Covering events like the 1885 war with Serbia should make us all appreciate that generations of Europeans have fought and died to make a world where the people living on this continent don't have to fear their neighboring countries invading them and killing their families. It's often easy to take that for granted, but today, none of us should. Bulgaria's history has to show us that we can never take things like democracy, peace, prosperity, any of it, for granted. Each and every generation has to earn those things by continuing to fight for them, whether that's people fighting corruption in Bulgaria or fighting Russian tanks in Donetsk. So, just wishing everyone in Ukraine safety. I hope all your friends and family there are safe. Listeners, I hope you are safe, and I wish you all the best of luck in resisting this horrific uh, aggression. Okay, so first, then after that, uh, to thank our newest patrons. So a big thanks to new patron Todor Gaidarov and returning patron Christian, as well as a generous donation from Alexander Varhoshkov. Hope I got all your names right, and let's get into the episode. Last time, we learned a lot about the main candidate for the Bulgarian throne, Ferdinand Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. He's an interesting man whose candidacy is far from popular among the great powers despite his very extensive family connections. But it all mostly hinged on the Tsar of Russia. The opposition of many other figures like Bismarck largely rests on the Tsar's opinion. In other words, many of the people who oppose Ferdinand's candidacy do so mostly because the Tsar opposes it. Meanwhile, several Russian-backed coup plots uh, and coup attempts are underway in Bulgaria, although Stumbloff thus far has managed to crush all of them. Still, he knows that the longer Bulgaria doesn't have a prince, the more likely it is that one of these plots will succeed in overthrowing him and his government and will likely turn Bulgaria into a Russian puppet as a result. Now, in the spring, he finally convinced Ferdinand to accept, although he then withdrew his acceptance, stating that he still needed the approval of the great powers. All of this led up to the summer, when the Grand National Assembly unanimously offered Ferdinand the throne. Thus, Ferdinand soon received the following telegram. Quote, the members of the Grand National Sopranier, with absolute faith in your competence and in the benevolent interest shown by you to the Bulgarian cause, have today, in the public session of the Sopranier, warmly and unanimously acclaimed you as their elected prince. In sending you on this occasion my respectful congratulations, I express the warm hope of the members of the Sopranier and of the entire Bulgarian people that you will arrive as soon as possible in our midst, to take up the government of the nation which thanks you for devoting your noble and precious life to the progress, liberty, and greatness of Bulgaria. End quote. Now, understanding Ferdinand's large ego, 
a contingent was also sent to present him with the results of the election in person. I'll quote Watt's biography of Ferdinand on what happened. Quote, Ferdinand immediately responded to the ceremonial aspect of the occasion, to the idea which he easily romanticized and which flattered his vanity, of the enjoying of a distant land traveling to him to offer him the crown. The prince and his mother stage-managed the occasion as the prince's first state ceremony. The Bulgarian delegate's train was met at the railway station by a file of ducal coaches, their lanterns topped with small golden crowns and the coachmen wearing their parade livery of black coats with gold frogging. On arriving at the palace, the delegates were led into a carefully posed scene. Princess Clementine was seated at an antique writing table with one of her ladies-in-waiting. Beside her stood the prince in evening dress, decorated with a Coburg star. President Tonchev read out, in French, the text of the Grand Sobranier's resolution. Prince Ferdinand replied in a speech full of festive solemnity and fine orotond phrases. But the Bulgarians present instantly realized that the fine words amounted to only one thing. Ferdinand was again refusing to come without Russia's recognition of his election. Quote, this within the quote, If I were free to follow the impulse of my heart, I should hasten to go amongst you, to place myself at the head of the Bulgarian nation and take in hands the reins of government. At that first, if, the Bulgarians looked at one another. The prince went on. But the prince-elect of Bulgaria must respect treaties. This respect will form the strength of his rule and will assure the greatness and prosperity of the Bulgarian nation. I hope we shall succeed in justifying the confidence of the sublime port and reconquering, after some lapse of time, the goodwill of Russia, to whom Bulgaria is indebted for her political emancipation, and to whom she consequently owes a debt of gratitude. I hope also that we may be able to obtain the approval of all the other great powers. Trust in me, and believe in my devotion to your country, of which I hope to provide the proof when I consider the fitting moment to have arrived." After this, Ferdinand's final words only irritated the delegates, some of whom were grizzled veterans of the Bulgarian fight for independence. They listened to the 26-year-old prince as he solemnly urged them in French, Show courage, prudence, and patriotic unity. May God bless Bulgaria and send her a brilliant future. Their most enthusiastic comment about the prince, about Prince Ferdinand, after that meeting was, Il est très diplomate. He's very diplomatic, in other words. End quote. All right. So, yeah, besides that last part, that was a long quote from Watt, but I wanted to put it in here because it captures some excellent details of the moment. Now, by this point, obviously, the Bulgarian delegates were becoming more and more frustrated. In particular, they felt that Ferdinand's appeals to Russia were basically idiotic because they were not going to convince the Tsar to support him, but could give the Tsar an excuse to demand he not take the throne, which you'll remember is kind of sort of what happened to his predecessor. But all that is to say, the delegates continued to demand that Ferdinand simply say yes or no immediately, while Ferdinand continued to equivocate. Indeed, Ferdinand even made the amusing suggestion that the Sultan should appoint him as regent so he could then dissolve the Grand National Assembly before convening a new one that the Russians could accept as legal, and the new legal assembly would proclaim him prince. Uh, but needless to say, Stumblov was uh, not having any of this. 
Still, he believed that Ferdinand was honest and that his hesitations were, well, somewhat justified, and he just needed the right incentive to finally accept. So, Stambolov sent another delegation with instructions to either return with Ferdinand or with a written statement of him renouncing the throne. But, as Watts wrote, quote, With true insight into Ferdinand's mentality, Stambolov told Natrovich to present him with a new Bulgarian general's full-dress uniform, complete with a white fur cap surmounted by a white plume a foot high, end quote. And that was it. That was it. Ferdinand could see that he just couldn't delay this any longer. His mother was by his side, urging him on, telling him fortune favors the brave. And with that, he finally said yes. Okay, I mean, he'd said yes before, but this, this was a more definite yes. However, that yes was still a secret, and Vienna was all abuzz with speculation about an order for China with his monogram on it, or that a tailor was making a uniform for him, you know, all indications that maybe he was going to accept. But in reality, his mother was busy leading the most pressing tasks of assembling a court for her son. Right away, she found two French nobles, while Ferdinand himself convinced his former tutor, personal physician, and a man who approached the Bulgarian delegation at the opera many months ago to be his press attaché. So he's convincing all these people to join his court. Lastly, he brought about a Bulgarian student who was living in Vienna, Dmitri Stansiov, and to be his political secretary and Bulgarian language instructor. With his knack for languages, he was actually even at this point making quick progress with Bulgarian before he'd even set foot in the country. Although sources note he will never lose his strong accent, he does learn the technical sides of the language very well. But of course, Russia was still working hard against him. Bismarck wrote at this time, quote, I have never doubted that a Catholic, a Hungarian, and a Coburg would each by itself be unacceptable to Russia, let alone Prince Ferdinand, who carries the three Russian Cerberus heads on his shoulder, end quote. And yet, Ferdinand was now the confirmed choice. What remained to be seen was just how the political fallout would basically play out. But at this moment, it's under, important to understand just how this decision was made. Now, Duncan Perry's biography of Stambolov rightly points out that, quote, Ferdinand was worried, and rightly so. He took his life into his hands by going to Bulgaria, for he risked injury or even assassination. But then he surely did not accept the job out of love for Bulgaria, or even out of some altruistic wish to help a small nation. He accepted the position because he wanted to be a ruler, and Bulgaria had the only vacancy. In the end, his ego proved too big not to accept the Bulgarian throne, and he may have believed, as Stambolov no doubt, doubt wished to convey, that this was his last chance, end quote. So, Ferdinand was taking on considerable personal risk, but that doesn't mean we should view his actions as purely altruistic, as Perry points out. For all his positive qualities, he is a somewhat vain man who is thirsting for the prestige of a throne. So, after all these months of back and forth, Ferdinand departed Vienna at 4 a.m. to take a train to a Danubian port to board a steamer called the Orient, bound for Bulgaria at the end of July. His early departure was because he feared the Austrian authorities might actually arrest him to prevent his leaving. This fear also motivated him to spend most of the train ride locked in the bathroom. 
which is a bit ironic. It's something I have seen on Balkan trains as a, a way for people to avoid having to buy tickets. And it's rather amusing to see a uh, erstwhile monarch doing it. So, no, there you go. But when Ferdinand arrived at the port of Orshova to board the Orient, along, along with the Bulgarian foreign minister and some officials, one member of his entourage expressed worry that Russian mines or torpedo boats might be awaiting them downriver, but the captain assured him that no such threats existed. When he departed, he officially resigned from the Austro-Hungarian army on the insistence of the emperor, who didn't want anyone to think he or his government supported Ferdinand's endeavor. His mother also sent messages to the ambassadors of the various great powers in Vienna, informing them of her son's decision and asking for their recognition. Basically, the Austro-Hungarian crown prince Rudolf gave his blessing and no one else. In particular, and prepare to be shocked here, the Russian government was absolutely furious. In fact, St. Petersburg sent the following telegram to their ambassador in Bucharest, quote, The imperial government has decided to consider Prince Coburg as a usurper who stands outside all the laws. Accordingly, all actions directed personally against Coburg so as to bring about his removal from Bulgaria cannot be considered punishable or subject to jurisdiction. While informing you of the above decision of the imperial government, I beg you to give your support to trustworthy persons who are prepared to take an active part in the removal of Prince Coburg from Bulgaria, end quote. So Russia's really not mincing any words. They, they will work with anyone and do just about anything to get Ferdinand out. But back to that steamship. When the Orient made it to the very first Bulgarian port on the Danube, locals gathered on the shore to greet their new sovereign, while Ferdinand donned his new Bulgarian uniform for the first time to set eyes on Bulgaria and its people. Soon, a Bulgarian ship containing the prime minister, regents, the cabinet, and other officials docked with the Orient, and Ferdinand met Stambolov for the first time. Here they were, the Viennese gentlemen with the bluest of blood, towering over the son of a Turnovo innkeeper. But both men were delighted by the circumstances because, as Watts put it, quote, the grandson of the king of France and the innkeeper's son had each gotten what he wanted, end quote. An eyewitness described the moment, writing, quote, two colossuses met, Prince Ferdinand and Stefan Stambolov. The penetrating eyes of Stambolov fixed on the eagle eyes of the prince, and the two understood that they were identically strong-willed, identically strong, identically ambitious, end quote. Now, the steamer continued down the Dan Danube, making its first kind of proper stop at Vidin, where Ferdinand set foot on Bulgarian soil for the first time. They continued to stop at every Bulgarian uh, port to meet with locals, uh, local dignitaries meet with crowds, and finally disembarking at Svistov to travel by open carriage to Ternovo, gathering a nice layer of dust from the road in the process. The next day, though, Ferdinand was officially crowned Prince of Bulgaria. The Prime Minister's speech at the coronation ended with, Long live free and independent Bulgaria, words which Ferdinand then loudly repeated in Bulgarian before being carried by a jubilant crowd to his carriage. However, these, work, these words provoked an immediate reaction in Europe where many wondered whether this was some kind of declaration of independence from the Ottomans. Ferdinand attempted to explain that the Bulgarian word nezavisima meant something more like not dependent, but uh, not surprisingly, this didn't really make the great powers any happier with the situation. 
but not much had really changed. The European powers were not happy with Ferdinand's role before his coronation, and they remained unhappy after it. Ferdinand, though, needed to continue to make a good impression. On Stambolov's advice, uh, after his coronation, he toured southern Bulgaria before going to Sofia in order to emphasize the unity of the recently divided and or recently united country. Soon, though, he was in the sleepy capital of Sofia with its wooden buildings and packed dirt streets. Reports indicate Ferdinand dreaded the food and accommodation he would need to get used to, and that he spent the first night in the palace sleeping on a mattress on the floor. A British diplomat con- commented on Ferdinand's arrival, writing, quote, All were curious to see what this young man was like who dared to accept this thorny crown without the approval of the suzerain Abdul Hamid or the Russian Tsar who claimed so preponderant a voice in the destinies of Bulgaria. I was present when he rode into Sofia and heard some of the unfavorable comparisons drawn by the crowd between him and his handsome and soldier-like predecessor. Tall, but awkwardly built, and already too stout at six and twenty, his seat on horseback was deplorable, in spite of having nominally served in the Austrian cavalry regiment, and it was remarked that a groom walked near his bridle rein in case the well-broken charger gave any trouble when the band struck up or the people cheered." But, despite the awkward uh, topics of uh, Ferdinand's bad horsemanship and such, Still, after a dangerous interregnum, Bulgaria now had a sovereign once again. But Ferdinand did not enter a political world identical to the one his predecessor had left. During that period, in which Ferdinand was still trying to decide whether to accept the position, Bulgarian Prime Minister Vasil Radoslavov resigned in support of the return of Alexander Battenberg once that possibility was ruled out. He then began to form a new liberal party known as the Radoslavists, which soon became the main opposition to Stambolov. So, once again, because the Bulgarian Liberal Party has been so dominant in Bulgarian politics, new opposition parties have been formed by breakaway elements of that party instead of from independent movements. When this split happened, Stambolov and his supporters began forming their own new party, known as the Popular Liberal Party, to distinguish it from the Liberal Party. Their party's newspaper will be the newly founded Svoboda newspaper. And I I say newly founded because this newspaper, Svoboda, is unrelated to the previous newspaper known as Svoboda, which was founded by Lubin Karavelov about 20 years ago. So this was the political situation at the moment the regency was dissolved. The great powers all protested, and Russia attempted to convince them to take stronger actions, but they were largely content with a simple verbal condemnation. No European power wanted Ferdinand on the throne, but only Russia seemed keen on taking any real action. Of course, this put non-Russian diplomats in a bit of an awkward situation because they still had to deal with the Bulgarian government while still trying to not officially recognize its sovereignty. They eventually settled on basically using private audiences to conduct official business, and that's kind of how they got around that. But the Tsar himself was still determined. He wished to simply invade Bulgaria and impose his will, but he feared the consequences. So instead, he attempted to actually find some compromise which would convince the Bulgarians to abandon Ferdinand. However, Stefan Stambolov held firm. The Tsar even encouraged the Sultan to invade Bulgaria, 
but strongly warranted threats from other European powers convinced the Sultan that this was not a good idea. The Sultan did send Ferdinand an unofficial note asking him to leave the country, but he basically only did that because the Russians pressured him to, and Ferdinand understood this and just ignored the note because, yeah, it was sort of an unspoken uh, understanding of the situation between the two. So for now, Tsar Alexander is content with simply aiding in the planning of Ferdinand's assassination on several accounts. In fact, two Bulgarian officers who had participated in the coup against Battenberg before fleeing to Russia were now using the Tsar's money to put together a scheme to do exactly that, kill Ferdinand, and specifically do it with the landmine of all things. However, Bulgarian officials managed to uncover the plot and arrest the men. But this would be far from the last time assassins made a play at Ferdinand. But while Bulgaria's new prince faced all these challenges, Stambulov wrote of the moment, quote, no words can picture my delight at the arrival of the prince. It has been a perpetual nightmare and terror to me that Bulgaria might lose her independence under my regency and that my name would be handed down to prosperity as a reproach. When the prince left for Sofia with his new ministry, I spent three days with my friends in fetting my deliverance. They were three of the happiest days of my life. End quote. Now, despite all the geopolitical challenges Bulgaria and Ferdinand still faced, it seemed finally time for some normalcy. A month after Ferdinand was crowned, the martial law, which had been enforced since the 1886 coup, was finally lifted. Austria-Hungary's main diplomat in Bulgaria wrote of Ferdinand's first few days that he, quote, "...vigorously seized the reins of government and has not allowed, even for one moment, that there should arise any doubt about his determination to occupy to the full the position which has been given to him by the will of the people and to invest his dignity with the unassailable authority. His attendants note with amazement how the timidity of the moment when the prince stepped onto Bulgarian soil has been disappearing hourly, and how the awareness that he is the ruler has penetrated him and given his appearance a dignified, if somewhat rough, firmness." End quote. Indeed, Ferdinand believed that Battenberg's downfall had been in part due to his, quote, easy ways, end quote, and was determined not to make the same mistake. In fact, years later, Ferdinand himself would explain that, quote, when I ascended to the throne of Bulgaria, I determined that if there was any killing to be done, I would be on the side of the killers and not the killed, end quote. And with that, I'll wrap this episode up. Ferdinand has finally agreed to become Bulgaria's prince and is settling into the role. Stambulov has achieved his main aim and taken a short rest. However, both men now face the difficult task of building a new politics in the wake of the loss of Battenberg and the breaking up of the Liberal Party. Next time, we'll see how both of these men settle into their new roles and precisely how Ferdinand will attempt to exercise the authority of his new role, one that he's been dreaming about his entire life. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can find more information about this and all episodes at bghistorypodcast.com. And well, thank you all for listening.